believe there are probably more than a few Christadelphians here who could quote that entire chapter by heart. It's one that we, we hear often, and it's a very appropriate chapter. And we hope it's appropriate for the things that we would like to consider this evening. Uh, tonight, brothers and sisters and dear friends, I would like to introduce you to an acquaintance of mine. I won't call him a friend, but he's someone that I know and I think each of us knows. And this is his picture. I'd like to introduce you to Benjamin P. Boaster. Now, we uh, had thought of calling him Willie Walker, but I learned a couple of years ago that we have a brother, Willie Walker. So, we've named him Benjamin Boaster, and I apologize to the Bens that are here tonight. And incidentally, the P stands for proud. Benjamin is a man with a message. I think you can tell that by looking at him. And he thinks it's a very important message, and everywhere he goes, he tries to get people to listen to what he has to say. And I think many of us here have met Benjamin at one time or another. Perhaps we know several Benjamin boasters. I think you'll recognize him when you hear what his message is, because it goes something like this. Hey, friend, don't be so serious. Don't be so uptight. Don't have so many hang-ups. Be like me. Be free. Enjoy yourself. Don't let the good times pass you by. Do your own thing, not what somebody else tells you is the right thing to do. Well, what's that? The Bible? Don't you know that life's too short to try to figure out what that's all about? What's that? Sin? Oh, come on. You know that sin is just a word that man has coined. You know that it's, it's simply used to describe what a man thinks is wrong because he says it's wrong. In any way, ideas about sin have changed in the last 20 years or so because really it's social injustice that's sinful if anything is what you do with your own personal life isn't anybody's business but your own so come on break out of your straitjacket stand up for your right to be a free human being just look at me I'm my own man, and nobody tells me what to do or what to believe. I live the way I want to live. I'm a fulfilled, self-actualized human being. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm the master of my faith. I'm a free man. I'd like to ask if anyone here has ever heard anyone make statements like this. Is this an unusual point of view? No, of course it isn't. Unfortunately, this is the rallying cry of a lot of confused people in these last days before our Lord's return. It's really an example of what some people call the new morality. Now that's what some people call it. But other people, people who have read history, who have read the Bible, who have thought seriously about things that matter, are not so sure about this. In fact, they think really it's the old morality, almost the old immorality, rather, almost as old as man is. And yet if we look at Benjamin Boaster, he certainly looks free. He stands up there with his hands outstretched. 
the very picture of human exuberance and dignity. He doesn't seem to be worried about a thing. He's holding his head high and his hands are stretched out. His shoulders are back. He's the very picture of self-confidence. So maybe, really, there is something in what he says. And maybe we who study the Bible are too tied down by old-fashioned ideas about what's right and what's wrong. Maybe Benjamin Boaster really is as free as he says he is. Well, what about it? Is he really free? Is he right? Well, certainly not if there is a God who has spoken, and not if the Bible is true, and not if we are to take seriously the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is the a picture of a man who simply does not know or doesn't care what the Bible really teaches. He has only some of the foggiest notions about a few things that Jesus Christ said. And sad to say, he really doesn't know what true freedom is. Although he thinks he does. Because he himself is not truly free. In spite of what he says about being free, he is a prisoner serving a life sentence. Last night, our brother Morris mentioned the shackles which bind human beings, the invisible shackles of which they are not aware, but which are very real and which definitely are there. People may think they are free and still be prisoners just as surely as if the shackles which held them were made of iron. Now each of the chains, the, the shackles attached to Benjamin Boaster's arms and legs is a symbol of something. Each one represents something. Let's give them names if we can. Let's suggest that one of them represents bad habits. For instance, Benjamin, although you perhaps can't tell it from this picture, has a terrific temper. Sometimes he loses his temper and he wishes that he, he says things that he wishes he hadn't said. So you can see already that though he protests that he's free, he really isn't completely free. To some extent, he is a slave to his own emotions. Now another of the chains which bind him to the wall behind him might be his uh, his, his possessions, his love of money. Benjamin owns uh, a beautiful, bright, uh, green sports car. Unfortunately, he worries so much about that sports car and he's so afraid that somebody will run into him and put a dent in it that he can't sleep nights. Well, he really thinks about that car far more than he should. It seems that he does not own the car, but that the car owns him. So we see that Benjamin is even less free than, we, than he thought he was. He is owned by the possessions which he thinks that he owns. He's a slave to an automobile. Well, there are a couple of chains left. What could another of the shackles which hold him prisoner represent? Well, Benjamin has a very strong desire to be liked by everyone that he sees. He wants recognition. He has an ego. He wants to be friends with the whole world. He tries so hard to please everyone with whom he comes into contact that sometimes he is a little hypocritical. 
Now we have simply suggested what these three of these chains could represent. And they could represent many other things than the things which we have mentioned, although what we have mentioned is certainly common enough. But the fourth chain can only represent one thing, and this is perhaps the most important chain of all. And that fourth chain is also the strongest one of them all. It's the one most difficult to break. And we will discuss the significance of that chain in a few minutes. Now, there isn't anything unusual about the condition that Benjamin P. Boaster is in, because he is in the same condition that all men and women who have not become brethren and sisters of Jesus Christ are in. He is in the same condition, and as we shall see, it is a very tragic condition, as all who, have, who do not have what the Bible calls the hope of Israel. Now this is a term which we Christadelphians use a great deal. And it's important that we understand exactly and fully what it means. Because it is one of the things which to understand and to believe makes us really different from other groups which also call themselves Christians. However, this is not specifically the subject of our talk tonight, because we are talking about this basic concept of freedom. Nevertheless, the hope of Israel is very closely related to freedom, and there certainly can't be any real freedom in the scriptural sense, in the absolute sense, without that precious hope. The Apostle Paul had this hope, and although when he spoke about this hope to the Jews, he was bound uh, in chains, he was a prisoner, nevertheless he was also truly free. What an interesting apparent paradox. Why was he free? And how can a man be bound with iron chains and still be free? Paul was free because the truth had made him free. Truth had made him free and no man could bring him back into the bondage from which he had been freed. If the truth then had made the Apostle Paul free, from what had it made him free? This is what we wish to draw your attention to tonight. How and why the truth can make one free, even though in prison, bound with chains to his jailer, as was the Apostle Paul. And so we have this word freedom, and it's one of those emotional, loaded words, which means different things to different people, and we have to define it. Politicians talk about freedom. Kings and presidents and premiers talk about freedom. Tyrants and dictators and demagogues talk about freedom. And those who support violent revolutions talk about freedom a great deal. And people like Benjamin P. Boaster talk about freedom, as we have heard. But this is not the kind of freedom we're interested in, because the scriptures tell us about not only a more important kind of freedom, but true freedom. And because this is a very important subject, and because it is such a wonderful thing, it is vital that we understand it. So let's look at the word freedom as God has used it in his word and see just why uh, this is such an important concept. We might first of all consider the opposite of freedom and what would that be? 
What's the opposite of freedom? Slavery, bondage, that's right. Now, the man in our picture, Benjamin Bolster, as the chains are meant to show clearly, is in bondage. He is a slave. He's a slave to his own desires and his own impulses. Now, he doesn't realize this because to him, the condition that he's in seems perfectly normal and natural and even desirable. So desirable that he talks about it to other people. He wants to get them into the same condition that he's in. Well, in fact, this is a normal and natural condition, but it is certainly not desirable. Because this is the condition every single human being is in until he has been brought face to face with the stark and beautiful truth of God's Word. The truth about himself. The truth about the Almighty God. And in the process, learns how differently God thinks from men and comes under the influence then of the Scripture's power to liberate, to set free. So let's trace out some of the details of the picture which the Scriptures paint of our subject for us. Let's try to see why this concept of scriptural freedom is something which we should think about. I'd like to ask you to follow along with me, if you will, as we examine some passages of Scripture uh, in the Old Testament, particularly, first of all. And we can read about the bondage of an entire nation, the nation of Israel, God's own people. And this is in the first chapter of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service, wherein they made them serve, was with rigor. And so here were the descendants of a people to whom God had made great and precious promises, suffering real hardships in a land where the inhabitants did not know the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They were slaves with no apparent hope of deliverance uh, from their bondage, slaves in a land of spiritual darkness. But God was aware of their suffering. He had not forgotten the promises which he had made so long ago to their forefathers. And we read in chapter 2 of Exodus, beginning at verse 23, that it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried. The cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them.
But just what, what was it that the children of Israel needed at this point? Well, they needed to be made aware of the fact that an escape from slavery was possible. They needed someone to lead them out of bondage. What they needed was a savior. They needed someone who had and who could wisely use the power necessary to make their safe deliverance from Egypt a possibility. What they needed was a way to freedom. And so what happened? We know that God met with Moses at the burning bush and he told him there that it was he who would lead Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness to the promised land. And we can read about this in the third chapter of Exodus, beginning at verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you, and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt, and ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us, and now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. Now we know very well the account of what happened. Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go uh, out into the wilderness with Moses, and it became necessary for God to show Pharaoh just whom he, with whom he was dealing. And yet, even after six terrible plagues, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the disease which struck their cattle, horses, and sheep, the hail and the thick darkness which could be felt, and the others, Pharaoh still refused to grant Moses his request, and so God sent his death angel through the land to kill the firstborn in every Egyptian family, but not of every Israelitish family, because in obedience to the commandments of God, Israel had marked each of their doorposts with the blood of a slain lamb. And so death struck Egypt, the land of gross darkness. But God's people, Israel, escaped death by obedience to God and by the shedding of blood. And by this final and awesomely terrible display of God's power, Pharaoh's stubborn will was finally broken, at least temporarily. And he gave Moses his permission, uh, in fact, he pleaded with Moses to take the Israelites out of Egypt. In the 13th chapter of Exodus, we can read what God said about this to Israel through Moses. This is at verse 14. And it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What is this? Or what is the purpose of this? That thou shalt say unto him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the house of bondage. Now, Egypt is called the house of bondage many times in the scriptures. As one example, God reminded Israel just before giving them the Ten Commandments of who he was and what he had done for them. 
with these words, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now, it's true that in a literal sense, Israel had been bondservants or slaves in the land of Egypt. This is biblical history. But it is also history with some of the richest symbolism in the entire Bible. Because the scriptural account of what happened to the people of Israel at the time of their deliverance from slavery isn't simply uh, a Bible story. It isn't just history, but it stands for something. We can learn some of the most important lessons of our lives from what happened to them at that time. Because the things which happened to them represent in symbol, or what we call types, the very same things that happen or that can happen to you and me today in our relationship to God and Jesus Christ. And so let's consider then just exactly what did happen. Egypt, we know, was a rich and powerful nation. In its prime, it was one of the greatest civilizations in world history, in strictly human terms. But it was also a civilization built very largely upon religious superstition. The God of Israel was not known there. Their system of religion was also one of almost unbelievable complication. They had a list of gods as long as your arm. The Egyptians worshipped just about everything that they could see. The river Nile, the sun, the frog, the cat, the bull, the crocodile. They also had more human-type gods, which included Pharaoh himself. So Egypt was a land of spiritual ignorance. It is, it is a scriptural symbol that is something which represents an idea or a condition uh, of darkness, of ignorance, of slavery, in other words, the very opposite to light and wisdom and freedom. It represents, then, if you will, a state of separation from God, the state which all men are in, that is, all except those who have drawn nigh unto God, those who have become his sons and daughters by being adopted into his family through the knowledge of his will and obedience to it. God's people were slaves in Egypt. They were the victims of every whim uh, and every fear of the Egyptians who, as we had read earlier, feared Israel. They feared that they would grow in numbers and finally outnumber them and turn against them. So Israel really was in a hopeless condition. Their outlook was not a bright one, and there really was nothing that they could do to save themselves. Now think about this, if you will. Every human being who is not Jesus Christ is in the identical kind of condition. All of us here at the Bible School who are members of God's household of faith have been in bondage, as Israel was. Some of us recently enough to remember very well what it was like when our understanding was darkened, and some of us had never even heard of the hope of Israel. I was in such a condition myself not many years ago. And just like Israel and Egypt, we were victims of the whims of others. And why do I say this? Because we lived basically to please and to impress men rather than God. But we were also 
victims of our own whims and fears, as all men must be who walk in the flesh rather than in the spirit, pleasing the flesh rather than God. We were without God and without hope. We knew very little or nothing about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Yahweh, the Mighty One, the One who is both merciful and righteous, who is both a God of love and a God of justice. And we were subject to the fears and the doubts which all men have who have nothing really solid in which to place their confidence and trust and faith. And like Benjamin P. Boaster, the man in our picture, doubtless we thought that we were free, but perhaps only because we had never experienced what true freedom really was. And whether we knew it or not, we were slaves. We were bound with chains which we could not see, but which were there and which were very potent nevertheless. Now, brethren, sisters, and friends, as you can undoubtedly tell, the viewpoint which is being expressed here is that of one which was not raised as a Christadelphian, as I was not, and I came to the truth relatively late in life, although as a child I was taught by my mother to respect the scriptures of God's word. I was almost 30 years old before I ever heard that God had made some very important promises to a man named Abraham, or that Abraham had actually had the gospel preached to him in the giving of these promises. And I know that there are very many in this room who will know exactly what I mean when I say that the knowledge of the truth was like turning on a 200-watt light bulb in a dark room where the only light prior to that time had been a very feeble glow, if there had even been that. Those of you who are members of Christadelphian families, and those who are not, and who have come to this Bible school to learn more of God's truth, in your entire lifetime you cannot take a more important step than that of baptism into the name of Jesus Christ. This is a very serious step, and it's a step from which there is no turning back once it has been taken. Therefore, it is a step which should not be taken lightly. But believe me, there is nothing in this world which has one-tenth the value of the true gospel. Whatever we might have here and now in this life, at this time, whether in good health or poor, whether we have many problems or few problems, whether we are in poverty or have wealth, or anything between these extremes, whatever is ours in this life is going to pass away. But what God offers through Jesus Christ will never pass away. It is forever. Now, a few minutes ago, we suggested uh, what three of the chains uh, which, with which Benjamin Boaster is bound might represent. And we said that the fourth chain could only represent one thing. Well, when we were in bondage to sin, we lived under a shadow. And what was that shadow? It was the fear of death. Perhaps we should say it was the sentence of death. Maybe we didn't fear it as much as we ought. But certainly it was something we thought about. Perhaps we hadn't thought very much about it when we were young, but as we grew older, that shadow grew longer and darker. 
Perhaps what we may not have realized was just how serious a matter that is. We didn't know that the scriptures taught that death, as uh, Morris brought to us, is the end of everything for those to whom God will not give eternal life. The fourth chain, then, which binds Benjamin Boaster is what the Apostle Paul calls the law of sin and death. For all his boasting about freedom, Benjamin Boaster is not related in any way to life. He says he is the master of his faith, but whether he realizes it or not, his faith is sealed. And he only has one thing to look forward to, and that is death. He claims to be the captain of his soul, but his destiny is dust and ashes in the land of forgetfulness, where the dead know not anything. Now we who have taken on the name of Christ have been rescued from bondage just as Israel was. But we needed someone to rescue us, someone that we could trust, someone we could follow. And God did provide someone to lead the way for us out of bondage. And Jesus continues to guide us through the wilderness to the promised land, just as the pillar of fire and the cloud led the way for Israel <coughs> in the desert. In the third chapter of Hebrews, the writer compares Israel's wilderness journey to our own. And he warns Christ's brethren to let their example teach us something. And here's what he said. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. And this last verse truly is a key verse. We must be steadfast unto the end. In other words, we must, as Jesus said, uh, Sorry, we must be partakers of Christ. Uh, we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our con confidence steadfast unto the end. And as Jesus said, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And so here are these two big ifs upon which hinge so much. Continuance unto the end. Continuance in the word which Jesus spoke, and holding the beginning of our confidence steadfast. Now, if we have been rescued from bondage to sin, we are now what Paul calls in his first letter to the Corinthians, the Lord made free. However, this freedom is a very precious thing, and we must treat it as something precious. In the United States, we are blessed with some freedoms for which we should thank our Heavenly Father every day. We're free to come and go, to choose our occupation, to change our job if we wish. We're free to not only move from one part of the country to another, but even to leave the country if we wish. And we're free to express our viewpoint. And one of our most precious freedoms is the one which we are exercising right here and now tonight as we meet together. The freedom to meet in this building to learn from However, on the other hand, no one can rob us of the freedom which we have in Jesus Christ. 
Freedom from the law of sin and death is not something which men can take away from us. But we can throw it away. We can throw it away if we use it foolishly or selfishly or if we simply do not use it. We read in the revelation given to John by Christ that Jesus in commending the first century church of Philadelphia for the faithfulness with, with which they had kept his word spoke these words of exhortation to them behold I come quickly hold that fast which thou hast that no man take thy crown now what crown did he mean he meant the victor's crown the crown of life the crown ultimately to be given those whom God through his son Jesus has set free from bondage to sin and who have been obedient and faithful to the end and who have continued in his word. Could others really take this crown away from them? No. Not against their will. Not if they were obedient and faithful. On the other hand, they could give this crown away very quickly, very easily. Esau, as Isaac's firstborn son, was heir to a birthright, and among other things to which this entitled him was the privilege of assuming the role of priest. It was a tremendous privilege and responsibility, this birthright was. But what do we read in Genesis? It says that Esau came home hungry, probably after a day of hunting in the field. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day, and he sware unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. So Jacob didn't take Esau's birthright from him. Esau gave it to him. Now when we are baptized into Christ, we become Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And as Esau did, we possess something which is both a tremendous privilege and a responsibility. And a part of the hope which becomes ours is that one day we will be kings and priests of our Father in heaven, representatives of God to the mortal inhabitants of the world during Christ's thousand-year reign. But one of the one of our major temptations in this life is that we do, in fact, live in the here and now. And the problems of this life can become so pressing that sometimes we just might be tempted, as Esau was to sell our birthright, to throw in the sponge, so to speak, to give up our divinely granted freedom when the going gets rough or our faith is at a low point because we are suffering. There is everything to lose in doing this, and there's nothing to gain. And certainly we must expect our faith to be tried in this way. But if we are faithful students of God's Word and trust Him to help us through our difficult time, we may remain free from the law of sin and death. And with our trust in God and our confidence in His Word, no one can take that freedom from us. It's a treasure which moss and rust cannot corrupt. Thieves cannot break through and steal it. Well, what else can we say about this freedom we've been talking about tonight? The Apostle Paul says that those who have become related to Christ are the Lord's made free. Now, are these simply nice, high, 
noble-sounding words, or do they really mean something? Excuse me. Yes, they do mean something. They are more than nice, noble-sounding words. And the freedom that we're talking about has many aspects to it, and certainly we could have a whole series of Bible classes on this subject. Jesus said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So the process begins with the Word of God, and with the commandments of Christ. These we have to learn. But more than this, they have to be lived into our lives by putting them consciously into practice day in and day out until they become a new part of our personality. The things which we have really learned are the things which we can remember in times of crisis when we really need to know them. So we must continue in Christ's word, which is, after all, the word of his Father. And only then, through knowledge and experience, we shall know the truth and become freed from the enslaving habits of thought and word and act that had been a part of us before the power of the truth had gripped us. So then there is a connection between truth and freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom to do what? As we said earlier, God's word has the power to liberate, and it can do so because it can teach man what he really needs to know if he ever hopes to understand himself and to know what his needs are. The truth can liberate us from Uh, the habits of the natural fleshly mind. The gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of which Jesus spoke and which Paul preached, this is what it can do for you and me. And it can free us from doubt. The truth can free us from fear and anxiety. It can free us from the compulsive need which seems to exist in so many of us and, let us say, in all of us, to be liked. It can help us to see that not everyone will like us if we declare our allegiance to God and his Son. The truth can free us from preoccupation with all the temporal things of this life And indeed, it can help us to see how temporary this life is. It can help us to see material wealth for what it is, something which we have been given to use, either wisely or foolishly, but something which, regardless of how we use it, will pass away. The truth can help us not to deceive ourselves or to try to deceive others. It can help us live lives that are just what they appear to be, not what we would like others to think they are. It can free us from this need to live a lie, as all men do to some extent. It can teach us how not to be like the self-righteous Pharisees, not so that we may then thank God that we are not like the Pharisees, but so that we may learn to see ourselves as we are, as God sees us that we may become humble and thank him that he has shown us such absolutely undeserved mercy. The truth can free us from a troubled conscience. It can give us, if we will work at it, the courage to face up to our weaknesses and to do something about them. God's word can free us from all of the things to which the natural man is a slave. It can break the chains which make us the bondservants of our flesh. Now I know that 
There are those who see in this process something rather mystical and almost magical and mysterious, but it really isn't that. We know that they would disagree with us. We can't deny that an emotional experience can help people to overcome some difficulties, but we're talking about something more inclusive than this, something which includes the whole personality. And our picture here is only something to help visualize our subject for us. We know that the chains which bind are not necessarily all broken at once, and some of them may take years and years to break completely. The knowledge that we get from the Word of God does not transform us completely overnight. It takes time and effort to accumulate knowledge, and that alone still is not enough, because knowledge has to age in the wood, as Brother John Peake likes to say, uh, until it becomes wisdom. The real purpose of knowledge, after all, is to create understanding, and if we are faithful in our study of God's Word and the application of that Word to the living of our lives, we will gradually learn how to become free of the thinking of the flesh. We will become truly wise, not in the wisdom of this world, but in the wisdom of God. Now we say that some of the chains may take longer to break than others. Perhaps we still find even as believers baptized into Christ's name, that we are somehow still weak creatures of clay, and that that clay possesses a will of its own. And we still struggle with it, attempting to bring our thoughts and words and actions into subjection to the commandments of God and Christ. I think each of us recognizes that the struggle exists in us and will continue to exist for us, just as this basic fact was recognized by the Apostle Paul. Let us put on the other side of the scale when we think that the weaknesses and temptations to which we are subject are more than we can bear, the positive fact. We know the God of Israel. He has told us about himself in his word. We know his son, Jesus Christ, to whom so much of the Old Testament pointed forward. And we have learned and we continue to learn the truth of the scriptures. This should be the greatest reality of our lives. We all still have much to learn, some of us considerably more than others. Nevertheless, hopefully, we are learning, and if we are not, we should be. And that's why we're here this week, because we are striving to follow after righteousness. And in direct proportion to our efforts are we free. To the extent that God's Word acts upon our minds are the chains which bind us to the weaknesses and impulses of our flesh loosened and finally broken. However, the truth can do much, much more than simply free us from something. It can free us to something. It can open up a whole new world to us. And brothers and sisters and friends and young people, this new world of which we speak is an exciting world of new possibilities, new opportunities. Because in becoming free from slavery to ourselves and from following after a self-centered and short-sighted way of life, and developing a God-centered, Christ-centered, far-sighted way of life, we can learn just how meaningful, how rich, and how satisfying life can really be. Now we all know that people search for happiness. There used to be a soap opera called The Search for Happiness, and they naturally look for it where they think they will find it. The United States, since its birth, has provided a constitutional guarantee that every citizen who obeys its laws may pursue happiness. But happiness is not easy to find. 
Truly happy people are rare. Why? Because man has lost his way. In the words of famous American poet Robert Frost, life has become like a pathless wood. Man has thrown away his compass, and in fact he has said to God, I don't need you. Let me live my own life. I'm a free man. And God has done that. He has left him alone. And yet he has not left him without hope or help if he wants it. Even with all of its disappointments, even with its suffering and tragedy, even this life can provide happiness for those who know where to look for it. And in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke these words, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And that word blessed, as I think many of you know, literally means happy. Blessed or happy are they which do hunger and thirst or seek after, not wealth, not status, not a new car, not a new home, not the ideal job, but righteousness. And why righteousness? Because righteousness is inseparable from learning and doing God's will. And those who do God's will have been promised by God himself that they will participate in the fulfillment of the promises which he has made, promises which involve infinitely greater blessings than anything that money can buy. And all of the blessings of which Jesus spoke to his disciples in his Sermon on the Mount begin with these words, Blessed or happy are they who do such and such. The happiness would then follow for those who would obey his words, even in this life, but especially happiness in the future life, which God will give to those who serve him now. And so the truth does free us from self to God and Christ. And Paul wrote to the Romans, as we had read to us uh, earlier, that they had once been the servants or slaves of sin, but that they had been made free from sin. They had gained freedom, and yet, says Paul, they were now servants, servants of righteousness, that they might bear fruit unto holiness and receive everlasting life. Now, when men use this word freedom in a political sense, they recognize that the phrase absolute freedom doesn't mean too much, because one man's absolute freedom to do whatever uh, he wanted to do would sooner or later trespass on someone else's freedom to do what uh, he wanted to do and before long they would be fighting. And so men have recognized the fallacy uh, and folly of this idea and they have coined phrases which uh, express their recognition of this. Phrases such as freedom within guidelines, freedom with order, freedom with responsibility. And ideas such as this definitely do apply to that freedom which is in Christ. So what are we free to do? We know that we are not free to sin, although in the broadest sense we are free to do this if we are willing to pay the consequences. We cannot do these things that we would, as the Apostle Paul said. And the flesh can struggle so violently against any restrictions placed upon it that Sometimes we don't feel free at all. Because of this, countless millions have assumed that the road to freedom lies in following every demand of our flesh, or what people call our natural instinct. But the scriptures, as well as our own experience, teach us that this is not freedom. It's simply a very easy and natural obedience to the most demanding and cruel master of all, our own sinful human nature. This is not freedom, it is servitude. It is not an expression of independence, it is our declaration that we are in bondage. And so, this freedom which we can have in Christ has its conditions, and like any freedom worthy of the name, it has restrictions, and yet it is the truest freedom of all. Who can tell me what this is? 
not a very good drawing, I'm afraid. Okay, we have a picture here of a yoke and a pair of oxen. And a moment ago, we said that all men, whether they realize it or not, must carry a burden or a yoke of some kind. And in those few parts of the world where plowing is still done by ox or horsepower, it's where two animals are used, they are kept uh, together to keep them from going their own separate ways and pulling against each other by a yoke. This is a, a wooden and iron frame placed around their neck. Now the yoke is designed to permit the animals freedom to move, but not to allow uh, them absolute freedom, because if it did this, then the work simply would not get done. The oxen or the horses must work together in cooperation, and they must move ahead and not simply from side to side. And there's another kind of yoke. And you still find this today in some parts of the world. And this one is designed to be used not on draft animals, but on the shoulders of people. And with a device of this kind, one man or woman, in this case, can carry even very heavy loads in two equal portions, one on either side. So you see, the purpose of a yoke is to help uh, with the job at hand. And there is a third kind of yoke, and it's one which every human being carries. It isn't made of wood, and it's different for each person. It is the burden of life, and it is made up of one's own personality, one's own habits, one's responsibilities, and it can be, and for many people is, the heaviest of all yokes. Now we have pictured this yoke today, uh, tonight, in, in our drawings as heavy iron chains, chains which, because they are so heavy and so strong, are a burden to carry and a bar to any real freedom or happiness. But there is, finally, a fourth kind of yoke, and the kind which can take the place of those uh, of the one which we have just spoken of, because in Jesus' words, the yoke which he gives to wear is easy, and the burdens he asks us to bear are light. Why? Because we, though we struggle against our flesh, and we know it is a real struggle, not an imaginary one, we are under grace, and through Jesus Christ, we can approach the one who will give us the strength, who recognizes our weaknesses, who will forgive our failures if we are making an honest effort to overcome. And each of us can carry a yoke of some kind, but there is no question about which kind is the most desirable. The yoke of the flesh is a set of chains. The yoke of Christ can make this life a far happier one and eventually bring us into that kingdom for which we wait and pray. And so finally, what is it we are free to do? What is this true freedom? Because in taking upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ, we become God's sons and daughters. We become free to develop godlike qualities, the qualities of our Heavenly Father, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And this then becomes our life's most important work. We become free to realize our real potential and to overcome the things which otherwise would keep us from reaching that potential. We become free to overcome the fears which prevent our learning the meaning of that perfect love which casts out fear. And we become free to seek the life which God will give to those who have been freed from slavery to sin and fear of death and who have used that freedom wisely and productively in his service.
as men and women who have been freed from bondage to sin, we are no longer slaves plodding away on the tragic treadmill of natural life, trapped in an existence whose end is death. We are men and women who have been mercifully rescued from that condition and freed to live a life of joyful service to God and Christ, a kind of life which will end in eternal life, a life freed forever from the weight of mortality, a life which will be the ultimate in true freedom. <laughs>